Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. The Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. My name is Graham Greenlee. I will be the moderator today. I would like to remind people to please turn off your cell phones because our session is being recorded. would remind everyone to uh, please pay for lunch. The cost is $11. There is a basket on each table. Put your money in the basket. Someone will be around to collect it uh, shortly before lunchtime. SACPA is a volunteer nonprofit organization. Uh, we rely on contributions of members and session attendees to continue our work. Memberships are available from Lisa. And Lisa is right over here with the red shirt. We'd like to thank our partners, the University of Lethbridge, for support and distribution of notices. Country Kitchen Catering for providing the great lunches that we have here every time. Shaw TV for broadcasting sessions on Sundays at 4.30 p.m. to the Lethbridge Herald and other Lethbridge media who cover SACPA events. For format of the meeting is 25 to 30 minutes for our speaker. We'll adjourn at 12.30, eat lunch for about half an hour, and we will reconvene at 1 o'clock for a question and discussion period. Winding up about 1.30 p.m. We'd now like to introduce today's uh, topic and speaker. Topic is talking about dying won't kill you. Should we have a choice at the end of life? Today's speaker is Wanda Morris. Wanda Morris is Executive Director of Dying with Dignity. She has been involved in the Right to Die movement for many years, including making a submission to a parliamentary committee on palliative care and compassionate care and acting as a witness in the report in the recent Gloria Taylor case in B.C., Wanda is a chartered accountant, a, a former member of the Canadian Association of Professional Speakers, and holds a Master's of Arts, Master of Arts degree in transforming spirituality. Dying with Dignity is a national charity with over 2,400 members and supporters, and a 30-year history of improving quality of dying. Dying with Dignity supports those who want a gentle death by informing them of their rights and options and expanding their end-of-life choices. So please welcome me in welcome please join me in welcoming Wanda Morris.
Um, if I stand here, can you hear me okay? Great. Uh, so thank you so much for coming out today. I'm going to talk for about uh, 25 minutes now and give you a general overview of the issues around uh, the right to die with dignity uh, and the situation in Canada as it stands. And then we'll have, have more time, I understand, after lunch for questions and answers, and I'm really looking forward to having a, uh, hearing your questions at that point. So one of the foundational principles of our medical system is the right of informed consent. There isn't a procedure, a diagnostic test, an examination that can be done to you without your consent. The second right that we have is the right to refuse treatment. And these two rights really go hand in hand, because how can we know whether or not we want a treatment unless we know what the outcome is likely to be, what the side effects are going to be, etc. Now, there was a landmark Canadian court case in the province of Quebec uh, back in the early 90s, a woman by the name of Nancy B. And she had a, a very debilitating disease. She was immobilized, uh, essentially in a hospital bed, her mind was alert, and she could you know, watch television or, as she put it, watch the paint dry, but she was completely trapped in her body and on life support. She didn't want to be there. She wanted to die. And her doctor said, you know, no, we aren't going to remove the life support because if we do that, we'd be killing you. I mean, we're not going to be complicit in that. And she took her case to the court in Quebec and she won. And she established another right for Canadians, the right to stop a treatment. So we, can, uh, we have the right to informed consent, whether we want a treatment or not. And once a treatment is started, we also have the right to stop it, even if stopping that treatment means our certain death. Uh, and sometimes we think about things like signing a DNR order, do not resuscitate, no CPR. Uh, also, at end of life, sometimes people make the decision to say, you know, no antibiotics, uh, no flu shots. I'd like to go off my insulin, you know, my diabetes medication, other things that are a stopping of treatment that will ultimately result in, in life ending uh, an example that uh, you may know of is the situation of our former Prime Minister, Pierre Trudeau. And he was diagnosed, diagnosed with cancer, and uh, a type of cancer that had a, a pretty good uh, remission rate, so a pretty good chance of a cure. He decided not to pursue treatment because he had also been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Uh, with dementia, and he did not want to experience the dementia, so he declined treatment for the cancer and, and died that way. So we have the right to, to refuse or withdraw from a treatment. Another landmark case in the uh, healthcare legislation in Canada is a case called Millette v. Schulman. Uh, Mrs. Millette was in a very severe car accident, 
she, there was four people in her car, including her husband. The other three died at the scene. She was rushed to hospital into emergency, and immediately the staff began to to, uh, to look after her to, to make preparations to, t- to save her life, uh, including a blood transfusion. And one of the staff, as staff do, looked in her wallet, was looking for identification, and pulled out a card. And the card said, I am a Jehovah's Witness, and I would not want a, I do not want a blood transfusion under any circumstances. And she had signed the card, but it wasn't dated. And, and the doctor, Dr. Schulman, he said, well, it's signed, but it's not dated. We don't know if it's current. We need to proceed. And then Millette's daughter came to the hospital, and she said, my mom is a Jehovah's Witness. She would not want a blood transfusion under any circumstances. Do not give her a blood transfusion. And the doctor said, well, you know, your mom is unconscious. She's unable to speak. This is a life-saving measure. We need to do it to save her life. We're going to proceed. And he did. And Millette recovered, which she otherwise wouldn't have done. Uh, she recovered, and she became so well that she was able to summon the strength to take the hospital and Dr. Schulman to court, where she sued him and them for battery. And she won the case. And the, the hospital appealed, and she won again on the appeal, uh, which seems a bit of hard lines for the well-meaning Dr. Schulman, but what it underlined was yet another really significant principle of our healthcare legislation, which is that if for any reason we cannot speak for ourselves, we can designate somebody else to be our voice. And the particular combination of written wishes in writing and an advocate to speak for us, a substitute decision maker, is very powerful in making sure that our wishes are upheld. Uh, Now, each province has different terminology and different legislation, uh, but the principle is the same right across the country. Now, what about if we're... The person beside us is in the bed, and they're suffering horribly, and they're on life support they can just say to their doctor or their care team, please remove the life support. I I would like to go. But what if if we're beside them and we have cancer or ALS or some other equally horrific illness, but we're not on any particular life-saving medications? What are our options? Well, one of the choices that we have right now is something known as terminal palliative sedation. Terminal palliative sedation. And as Canadians in our healthcare system, we can expect not to have uncontrolled pain. Uh, It's not a right as such, but certainly if we did experience uncontrolled pain, our doctor wouldn't be doing their best job. So there's sort of some common law practice behind that. Uh, so we have the right not to experience pain. And if the, the only way that our pain can be mitigated is by rendering us unconscious, then, then this becomes an option. And, and sometimes you will have heard of people being put in a coma after an accident. Maybe their brain swelled and they want to just, you know, uh, reduce the pressure on the whole body system. And it can be a temporary measure. 
terminal palliative sedation is where somebody is put into a coma and food and hydration is stopped. Uh, And our bodies can go for some time without food, but not very long at all without hydration. And so in this process, the, the individual dies of dehydration. Now, you might think there's not a lot of difference between putting someone in a coma and dehydrating them to death and just giving them an injection or a medication that they could take themselves that would allow them to die. But in Canada, this is the line. This is where we differentiate it. And the way that it's differentiated is by saying it's about intention. Uh, If the person goes into palliative sedation, it's the intention of the medical team to relieve suffering, and the death that will result is a kind of unintended side effect. Uh, Or, you know, it could be, you know, a known and predictable side effect, but as long as the team is, is fully focused on relieving pain, relieving symptoms, then palliative sedation is okay. Similarly, when we talk about pain control, pain control is, is very much uh, an art rather than a science. And, and medical staff will tell you that you know, what painkillers will, will you know, completely sedate one individual may do very little for another. Uh, and you know, we've even heard stories of you know, frail little 90-year-old ladies who are given enough painkillers that you know, the doctors swear would fell an elephant and they're still bright-eyed and you know, feeling their pain. And doctors are monitored when they write these you know, uh, prescriptions for these you know, very strong painkillers, the, the opiates and the, the morphine. And so they have to be very careful uh, because they cannot write a prescription intentionally to give somebody an overdose and cause their death. Yet, certainly as part of their practice, they want to make sure that they give enough of a prescription so that the individual is not in pain. Uh, and, and this is a reason why sometimes people's pain is undertreated because doctors fear a pushback that they were um, deliberately acting to cause a person's death. Now, in uh, 1972, uh, Pierre Trudeau was the prime minister at the time, and he had uh, quite famously said, the, the, the state has no place in the bedrooms of the nation, uh, he also decided it was time to repeal Section 241A of our criminal code, which said that suicide is illegal. This is uh, a prohibition that has roots going way back into feudal times. Your body belonged to God or to the lord of the estate, and who were you to trash their property? Uh, so Trudeau struck that down, and since 1972, it has been, in fact, legal to end your life, which, if you're successful, has never had a, any comeback, but if you were unsuccessful, it, it certainly used to have repercussions. But we have an interesting situation, because we have an act that is legal, but assistance to perform that act is illegal. And it's very anomalous. There's only one other situation in Canadian law where we have, it's legal to do something, but if you help someone else to do it, in the case of assisting someone to die, you could face up to 14 years in prison. 
and the only other situation like this is the case of prostitution, where it is actually legal to sell sex for money, but illegal to do uh, any of the transactions surrounding it. That's where we are now, and that's our current legislation. There are a number of individuals, and it's about 80 to 85% of Albertans, who think there should be another way, that there should be a different choice. And it's a choice that we call medically-assisted dying. And you'll notice that we deliberately don't call it suicide because we really think it's a separate, a separate decision. When somebody considers suicide, generally it's somebody with, with health. And if we sort of, I'm an accountant, so I'll do a little bit of a graph here. But if this is your health sort of from zero to 100%, we think about suicide, it's usually some, you know, often a teenager or somebody that's going through some very distressing times but physically healthy, and they make the decision to end their life, poof, and, and so their, their health drops off like that. When we talk about medically-assisted dying, we're talking about people that are terminally ill. They have ALS. They have cancer. Their bodies are shutting down on them, and they're facing the prospect of horrific suffering. Uh, ALS, for example is a disease that affects the body while leaving the mind completely intact. So, so first you might find you can't scratch that itch at the back of your neck, and then you can't feed yourself. You're no longer able to dress yourself or toilet yourself, and eventually you're lying down in a bed because that's all you can do, awaiting until your lung muscles stop working and you die in your own secretions. And with that sort of a prospect, it's not any wonder that people with that disease say, I'd like to have a different option. I'd like to have another choice. And so medically assisted dying is about taking people who, whose health is not here, whose health has been declining and declining and declining. We are all dying. But they are dying now, and they're asking for the choice, rather than to wait to that horrific end, to have a peaceful and a gentle death. And that's what we mean when we talk about medically-assisted dying. Medically-assisted dying really became an issue for Canadians with this woman here. Uh, Sue Rodriguez was a woman with ALS, and she had a nine-year-old son. Sue knew what was in store for her. And she knew that she could, while she was still able, end her life, as many people do with these diseases. You know, we have a, a client support program where we work with people at end of life. We absolutely obey the laws, and we don't assist them, but individuals who are thinking about the decision, we provide information and emotional support. Sue wanted to end her life, but she had this boy, and she didn't want to leave him one day too early. So she wondered, couldn't she just 
wait until she was ready to go and then be assisted to die? And she asked this question repeatedly all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. Who owns my life? Who or who owns my body? And this was a a case that really captured the hearts and minds of Canadians. Before this case uh, came out in 1993, a majority of Canadians didn't see a need for medically assisted dying. But with this case, about 65% of Canadians started to support the idea of medically assisted dying. It went to the Supreme Court of Canada, and the deliberations were intense. The final decision by the narrowest of margins, by a five to four margin, was not to grant Sue Rodriguez assisted dying. The basis for her case was that she was being discriminated against because of her disability. She said, you know, if I was an able-bodied person, I could end my life. But I'm in a wheelchair. I'm not able to do that. Therefore, I'm being discriminated against. That conflicts with the Charter, Section 15 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that Canadians have. And the justices of the Supreme Court agreed with her. They agreed that her rights were being infringed upon. But they pulled on another part of the Charter, Section 1, that basically says it's okay sometimes to infringe on an individual's rights if we need to do that to protect society as a whole. You know, you could think of someone saying, well, I want to drive 300 kilometers an hour down the highway, and maybe that's their right, but certainly that infringes on the safety of the rest of us. So that Section 1 make sure that the rest of us are protected. And at that time, the justices said they weren't convinced. And and Justice Zipinka, in writing for the majority, he said, Canadians don't support this. Doctors don't support this. Nowhere else in the Western world is this legal, so we can't have it. And so she lost by a 5-4 decision. A decision, interestingly, that the Globe and Mail, in a recent survey of readers, asked Uh, people to give their opinions on cases that the Supreme Court had uh, opined on in the last 30 years. And this came out as the worst decision of the Supreme Court in the last 30 years in that reader survey. Twenty years later, a woman by the name of Gloria Taylor had ALS. And she had a 13-year-old granddaughter that she was really close to. She didn't want to die the horrible death that might be in store for her. And she didn't want to leave her granddaughter one day too early. This case went to the BC Supreme Court where it was heard. And Justice Smith heard the case. It was, if Rodriguez, the evidence was captured in a binder. In Carter, as the Gloria Taylor case is known, the evidence was a bookcase full of binders. In the 20 years between the two decisions, we had legalization in Oregon and in the Netherlands, 15 years in Oregon, 10 years in the Netherlands. And as you can likely appreciate, this is one of the most studied pieces of legislation ever written. Uh, There was Uh, unprecedented witnesses from around the world who came and testified in that case. And Justice Smith reviewed it, and she concluded that it 
was indeed possible to allow assisted dying and protect the weak and vulnerable. Uh, so that was a, a decision that came out just over a year ago in uh, June of 2012, and those of us who support the Dying with Dignity movement were really excited. And, of course, as we would anticipate, the federal government and the Attorney General for BC appealed. And, and that appeal uh, was was heard uh, earlier this year in March, and the decision just came out um, a week or so, a week, two weeks ago. Uh, the BC Appeal Court overturned the decision from Carter. So they overturned Justice Smith saying that Justice Smith's overturning of the pre previous Supreme Court rules. So once again, according to the courts, it's illegal to assist someone to die. But it's interesting the grounds that they used to overturn it. They invoked a legal principle called stare decisis. And what that means is basically we don't have the jurisdiction to overturn it. You know, if you imagine uh, your son going to his mom and saying, Mom, can I have a cookie? And Mom says no. And then he goes to Dad and says, Oh, Dad, can I have a cookie? And he makes this compelling case. And Dad says, Well, I'd like to grant it to you, but, you know, Mom said no, so you really need to go back to her. Uh, and that's what we have in stare decisis. So it's not that they found fault with the facts of the case or the arguments of the case. They just said uh, it for for a Supreme Court decision to be overturned, there has to be a recognition that the law has changed significantly. Justice Smith at the BC Supreme Court level, she thought it had. She thought the law had changed so much that she could overturn it. At the BC Appeal Court level, two of the three justices, because it was a split decision, two of the justices said no. Uh, the, the court, the laws haven't changed that much. We can't over, only the Supreme Court can overturn the Supreme Court. Now, the dissenting justice was actually Justice James Finch, who was the chief justice in BC, and he retired with this decision. He wrote a very stirring dissent, uh, thinking that the case, the decision in Carter, Gloria Taylor, should have been upheld. So now it's heading off to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court doesn't have to hear a decision. They always have the choice about whether or not to hear an appeal. We certainly hope that they will hear this appeal. There's certainly strong public interest in this appeal. We should know in the next um, four to five months whether or not they will hear it. And then if they do, there's quite a backlog. So it will probably be 2015 before it goes to the Supreme Court of Canada. Meanwhile, meanwhile, we have another province in our union uh, called Quebec, and they have decided not to wait. Uh, in fact, they began a process back in 2009, really about the same time that the Gloria Taylor Carter case was launched, and they began a consultation process right across the province to talk about assisted dying. They had um, had their board of uh, physicians, a college of physicians and surgeons, had come out and said, we think that euthanasia, voluntary euthanasia, should be allowed in certain uh, very limited circumstances. And so the government put together a really textbook example of democracy. 
individuals from each party got together on a select committee called the Committee for Dying with Dignity. And they held meetings um, around the province, and accepted submissions, and came out with a report. And the report said, uh, while the initial focus of the committee had been on assisted dying, the report was much broader. It said palliative care needs to be a right, advanced care plans need to be used much more broadly by Quebecers, and we need to uh, enforce them, that hospitals, audit hospitals for compliance, and we need to allow assisted dying. Uh, so that was quite a, a breakthrough and a very interesting way to do it because what they said is, we're not going to challenge the criminal code because we're not talking about assisted suicide. We're talking about helping patients have the best possible death. That's about you know an individual and their doctor. Clearly, that's a medical decision. It's regulated by healthcare, which is a provincial jurisdiction. Uh, so we will pass a bill allowing that to happen. Uh, and that bill was tabled in June to a standing ovation of the Quebec Parliament, uh, and it's right now in hearings. And they have talked about passing it sometime, perhaps by the end of this year or early next year, which would be a, a bill that would allow Quebecers who are grievously ill and suffering unbearably to have assistance to die by a doctor willing to support them. I'll just close by briefly touching uh, on dying with dignity. Our mission is to improve quality of dying and to expand end-of-life choices. And we do that in four ways. We work with people that are dying right now through our end-of-life support program, our, our client support program. Uh, our client support manager and volunteers help people that are facing horrific decisions or people that simply want information about creating their advanced care plan or want to know more about their options as patients. We also educate about the reasons why medically assisted dying should be legalized, just like I'm doing with you here today. Oh, and I missed, I missed that, okay. Um, advanced care planning and patient rights. And uh, hopefully, how many of you here have an advanced care plan? Okay. Remember that shoe salesman that went to Africa, the two of them, and one came back and said, oh, there's no market, nobody wears shoes. And the other person said, oh, there's a fabulous market, nobody is wearing shoes. Uh, so I will take this as an outstanding market opportunity. Uh, please, 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 please give yourself an advanced care plan. It's a gift for yourself. It's a gift for your loved ones. Uh, we are providing kits to our members, and, and I, I don't want you to, to be um, mad about, with me, so I'll tell you that we are about to make our kits free to the general public. I hope that you'll want to be a member and support us anyways, but if that's not in the cards, then in about a month you'll be able to download the kit free from our website. But please make sure that you do this for yourself and for others so that if you're not able to speak for yourself, others know what treatment that you want. Uh, we have had so many people tell us how difficult it's been to make decisions for their parents and the guilt that they feel not knowing what their parents wanted. Okay. There is some suffering that only death can end. And that's why I'm here today and why I encourage you to get involved, to learn more, and to support Dying with Dignity.
Thank you, Wanda. We will now break for lunch. Uh, I would encourage someone at each table to count the money, make sure everyone has paid. Uh, we don't mind uh, too much money in the basket, but we don't like not enough. Now, during lunch, I would encourage you to discuss the topic and be ready with a few questions when we readjourn at 1 o'clock for our discussion and uh, question period. <laughs>